All right, today we're going to start with the 100th Psalm, a psalm of thanksgiving. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this beautiful weather you've given us. Thank you for the people that are here and uh, we pray for those that aren't here today. Some of them are uh, having some afflictions in their lives and uh, we just ask that you would be with them and take care of them. And uh, I ask that you bless anybody also that's watching on YouTube in the future that uh, maybe they'll hear something that will uh, inspire them to uh, search out your word more. Lord, we want to thank you for the food you've blessed us with in the past week and for the fellowship and the, the family and all of the uh, good blessings that you've bestowed upon us. And give us the good sense and the reminder in our minds each day to turn around and praise you for the things you've given us and to come into your courts with thanksgiving and to come into your presence with praise and to just just honor you as you are due because you're a wonderful loving creator who would send Jesus to live the perfect life that we can't live and who would uh, give his own life up in exchange for our sins what a great God we thank you for that we want to give you just praise 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 let us do that in our lives and on our lips each and every moment to your honor and glory and in the name of Jesus we pray amen all right just a few announcements today um, uh, as I said last week we signed a contract for the Reynolds Street property and then we went through the 10 days of inspections and everything and um, there was enough wrong with the place that I uh, uh, went ahead and sent a note yesterday saying that either the contract is uh, null and void or that he can bring it up to code. And uh, if we meet the uh, codes, if he's willing to do that, then we'll take care of all the other little things. Uh, lots of little electrical problems and, you know, uh, drywall this and, uh, you know, just things that need to be done. But the things that are code related, he really needs to take care of. And um, so we'll see. We'll probably know within the next eight to 10 days whether the uh, building is going to go through or not. And uh, I'd rather not rush and uh, make sure that we have a, a good location to meet at that's going to be sound and uh, uh, just go from there. But it is, you can't beat the location. It's three minutes down the road once you get on to, uh, not even that, you get on to 41 and it's about a minute down the road. So location is good, but I just want to make sure that, uh, you know, what we do is going to be proper. Anyway, um, uh, of course, along with that, uh, we're always looking for inviters of others. So if uh, you know somebody that uh, even if they don't want to attend at the, cheat, at the beach, which a lot of people have a problem with either the cold or the heat or the mosquitoes or whatever, um, you know, just let them know that in the future we will have a building and, uh, uh, you know, we just welcome them uh, heartily into the uh, uh, meeting area. And uh, I think maybe not everybody here has been baptized. I don't know. Um, uh, but if anybody wants to be baptized, they'll do it any day of the week. Uh, baptism is something that should come after salvation. I mean, there's always a dispute between denominations about the uh, right of baptism. But uh, uh, I do believe that, and the, the Bible never shows anybody being baptized prior to conversion. It's a picture of our salvation. It's being buried with Christ in his death and raised to newness of life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the picture only makes sense after one has come to Jesus Christ. So if anybody wants to do that anytime, got water right there and uh, we'll take you out there anytime you want. And uh, 
so that's uh, just something that uh, I offer now and until we have a building when we'll have to actually start scheduling those things. But, you know, any day of the week right now, we can just go out there and do that. And um, today will be our 59th sermon in Genesis. We'll be in Genesis chapter 26, verses 15 through 35. So we're going to finish the chapter. And uh, then uh, next week, we'll start into Genesis 27. Really wonderful stuff in that one as well. And um, I think that's probably all of the announcements I have. Paul and Elaine, uh, who we've brought up week after week, you all met them last week if you were here. They uh, are back from Japan, and uh, uh, now they're going to be fellowshipping in Florida. They've gone away for a couple weeks, and they have a few more weeks of moving their house and everything, and then they'll be out here regularly but uh, boy, what a what a pleasure it was to have them back from Japan. And um, oh yes, it's I said this last week, and I'll say it again: is that um, since we moved from the more uh, afternoons to the mornings, and all the people that attended in the afternoons, you know, that uh, played music and everything, uh, they went back to their own churches because they had morning churches to meet at. It's kind of been a one-man show, and I want to remind you and to think about this. I got Darla sent me something a couple days ago about this, but. Uh, uh, if we move into a building, I would really, really love to see people uh, uh, willing to play any instruments that they know how to do. If we continue just reading the Psalms, maybe somebody else would come forward and do that. And um, all kinds of little things that I do here that people could participate in and uh, probably make you feel a little more welcome and a little more, um, uh, you know, like you've got a, a, a part and a, uh, you know, something that will uh, allow you to feel like you're doing something for the ministry. And uh, I know out here it's a little difficult to do that. I mean, we get trees and we got people walking around and stuff, so it's kind of hard to to have things go back and forth. But please keep that in mind. And if there's something that you want to do in a ministry when we move into a building, uh, we'll just we'll run with it and uh, we'll try to make it where uh, people are participating. Anyway, um, we'll go ahead and get into the sermon here. It's uh, maybe a little bit longer than normal. I'll tell you what. What we're going to do before we get into the sermon. Uh, it's not so long today like it was two weeks ago that um, we might as well do a New Testament reading. And last week we stopped off at Romans 11.11. 11. So I'll read verse 11 again and we'll just go through uh, just a few verses and we'll just give a very short analysis of them and uh, then we'll get into the sermon. Um, let's see here. Romans 11 verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? This is speaking of the Jews, as uh, we've been doing Romans 9 through 11. It's speaking about the state of the uh, Jewish people in the world. Are they in? Are they out? And, of course, you know, uh, if you uh, have been here more than one service, you know how I feel about the nation of Israel and the people of Israel. And, in fact, the sermon last week and the completion of Genesis 26 today leaves no doubt no doubt that God is not through with the uh, Jewish people. The pictures that are being presented there point to the future. But here's what Paul says just to answer that question for us. I say then, have they, meaning the Jews, stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So we have, you know, God working in one dispensation and then another. First, the uh, Jews are in, and the world is supposedly, you know, should have been if the Jews had properly been a light to the nations, they should have been jealous of what uh, the Jewish people had and wanted to stream to them. And we, in the Bible, we do see examples of that. Not many, but that is what happened. But since then, salvation has come to the Gentiles. 
And the purpose of that, the main purpose that Paul says right there is to provoke them to jealousy, to make them want what we have and then to stream to the Lord once again. And uh, all of the book of Ezekiel just really points to that coming uh, in the future. But um, that is the main purpose. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. 12. Now, if their fall, meaning the, the fall of the Jewish people and their dispersion around the world, if their fall is riches for the world, which it is, the salvation of the world, all the Gentile peoples of the world, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? In other words, when the Jewish people are brought back into the fold, how much more riches will there be in the world? And we are seeing that in our lifetime. It was starting in the 1960s in particular, right about the time that Jerusalem was recaptured, the Jews for Jesus came out and the great messianic movement and uh, the number of Jewish people that are coming to saving faith of Jesus in Israel is going up almost exponentially now. And uh, we're seeing this in the world, how many Jewish people. And the one thing I've always said that if you have a Catholic that comes to know Christ, they are the greatest Christians. And the reason why is because they have all of the doctrine already. They already stand the understand the Trinity. They understand you know, this and that and one thing and another, the, the, the principles of Christianity, and when they get that heart knowledge, then they make wonderful Christians. And the Bible classes that I used to teach, they made the best Christians. But the same is true with the Jews. If the Jews come to Jesus Christ, they have the foundation. They understand the feasts of the Lord. And all of a sudden, they make the mental connection. Oh, this feast of the Lord from Leviticus 23 is pictured in what Jesus did here and here and all of these. And they make the finest Christians, just as most of you that are here that know Sergio. What a man of God. What a man of God. And simply because he had the foundation already and to be able to perceive how the, the Old Testament is fulfilled in the new. My goodness. And that's what Paul's speaking about there. Um, verse 13, for I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am uh, an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. And Paul will say this, I believe, four times in the New Testament. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. Everything that he writes from the book of Romans all the way through to Philemon, they're all addressed to Gentiles. You've got Rome, you've got Corinth, you've got Ephesus, and you've got Galatia. These are all Gentile peoples. And not only that, they're the, the Greek sons of Japheth from the, uh, the son of Noah. It's the line of Japheth and how the Bible is woven together in this beautiful picture that we went through many sermons ago. But uh, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. If you reject Paul, and a lot of churches nowadays are starting to go away, get away from Paul. They, and that's said in the New Testament that that would happen. But if you reject Paul, you reject church doctrine because Jesus himself said when he was speaking to Ananias and Ananias said, Lord, this guy is... Uh, 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 come to persecute us. And uh, Jesus said, go. He is my chosen vessel to carry my message to the Gentiles and to the kings and the Jewish people of the world. So Paul, what he writes and what he speaks is the word of the Lord. And it is that word for the Gentile church. So we cannot reject Paul and have proper New Testament theology. It's simply not possible. I speak uh, to you Gentiles and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save them. And he's speaking about his brothers, the Jewish people who have fallen away. For if their being cast away is reconciling of the world, 
what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Very interesting verse. I've never heard anybody come to this conclusion, but I am certain it's correct. He says, if they're casting away means reconciliation for the world. In other words, salvation has come to the world because the Jews are out right now. He says, how much, what does he say here? What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? In other words, when the Jewish people accept their Messiah, that's the time of the first resurrection in the book of uh, Revelation. Life from the dead will occur at that time. And it's just a picture of what he's saying. When the Jews are grafted back in and understand who their Messiah is, that is the time at the end of the tribulation period, the resurrection of the dead, then you have the millennial reign of Christ, and then the second, the final resurrection. But before that happens, of course, is the rapture of the church. So you have a sequence of events which is going on. The rapture of the church, you've got the tribulation, the resurrection of the dead, which is what he speaks up here, and then the millennial reign of Christ. Okay, so anyway, um, for if the first fruit is holy, meaning the Jewish people, the lump is also holy. Actually, the first fruit is Jesus. Um, he's uh, called the first fruits from the dead. If the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Okay, he's speaking of uh, the lump of bread. If any part of it is holy, the whole lump of bread is holy. And if the root of the tree is holy, then the branches are holy as well. And now he's going to explain that. He says, and if some branches, meaning the Jewish people, were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Branches are broken off the wild tree. They're out temporarily while salvation comes to the world. The wild olive is grafted into the true olive tree, and we're receiving this, this nourishment from the Holy Spirit because of the, uh, the person of Christ. And then he says... Um, uh, do not boast against the branches, those that are broken off, meaning the Jews. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. And now he's going to humble us. He says, you will say then, branches were broken off, meaning the Jews, that I might be grafted in. Paul says, well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. Don't lord it over the Jewish people. Tell them about Christ. Take time to explain him to them get them to understand who their Messiah was that they've missed for the past 2,000 years. The time of fullness is coming in human history, and it's coming in during our lifetime. We talked about that a little last week. Once we have a church and we can have, start having Bible studies, you will see Darla's been in many of these, and she understands the importance of the Jewish people and what is happening in the world with them affects everything else in the world around it. So he says, um, where did I want to stop today? Verse 24, we'll go a little further. He says, therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, the Jews. Severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. I am typing uh, Romans, uh, one of my uh, devotionals that will be out in five days, and I was talking about that this morning, is that people tend to think because of a certain lineage, like the Jewish people, that they're in God's good graces, and they don't need to worry about acting properly. And Jesus told them right in his parable about the Galileans having their blood mixed with uh, the sacrifices and the people that were the Tower of Siloam fell on and killed all those people. He's saying, if you don't repent, you're also going to be uh, uh, likewise cast out. Now, I know that's a misquote, but some people think, well, I'm in a, the, you know, a certain cult or a sect or a certain denomination, and because of that, I am secure. 
then it doesn't work that way. We are secure because of faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. That is what we stand on. We don't stand secure because we're a, a Methodist or a Roman Catholic or a Baptist or anything like that. There are good people in bad churches and there are bad people in good churches and the Lord will sort them out individually, not because of some external that they carry around, but because of the internal. All right, let's see here. Um, verse 22, therefore, uh, we read that verse 23, and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, meaning the Jews, they will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again. And he will do so. It's coming. It's coming soon to a, a theater near you. But um, uh, we can be broken off just as quickly as the Jews can be grafted in. And now he goes to make a wonderful point. This will be our final verse, and then we'll get into the sermon. Verse 24, for if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, we're a wild olive and we're being grafted into a good one, he says, and we're grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, meaning the Jews, who are natural branches, be grafted into their, uh, be grafted into their own olive tree? And what he is saying is exactly what I brought up a few minutes ago, that they, when they are regrafted in, they already understand the entire Old Testament. They've lived by it. You know, they do the Passover every single year. They've, I've been to some of my neighbor who was a Jewish guy, and he would do all of the festivals every year, not understanding that they were fulfilled in Christ. But once that mental connection is made, how much more quickly and how much more firmly will they, they be grafted into this olive tree? So let's not stand over our Jewish brothers and 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 uh, you know condemn them because they've rejected Jesus. We want to tell them why Jesus is their Lord and how they can be saved as well. There's no salvation apart from Jesus Christ, but at the same time, God has preserved them as a people, as he said uh, a few chapters ago, because of his love for the patriarchs. And they will always be saved in a remnant status until the time that all Israel is saved. They're once again, call on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and he comes to rescue them at the end of the tribulation period. Wonderful stuff. Let me pick this thing up here and uh, put that in there. And uh, we'll go ahead now and get into the sermon, which is um, Genesis 26, 15 through 35. This is the, uh, uh, we're going to complete the entire chapter in these verses, so I'll have to kind of speak quickly today. But this uh, sermon is entitled, That Which Has Been. And if you know, I like to uh, quote Ecclesiastes and uh, particularly Ecclesiastes 1.9 and it's repeated in 3.15, just a little variation. What he says, he says, um, that which is uh, will be again, that which has been done will be done again. And there is nothing new under the sun. There is a repetitious cycle of what's going on in human history. And we can see it, you know, in the, uh, the cycle of the rain and we can see it in the cycle of how uh, trees fall down, turn into earth, and then they rise up in another tree. But there is also a cycle in history itself, and things repeat themselves. Uh, you know, we have some wise guy once uh, came up with the uh, basically the proverb that says, um, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. And we don't learn from history, and that's why these things continue repeating. And you're going to see this today, and I hope you'll enjoy it. But before I get into that, as I do every single week, it's uh, 27 January, and on this day in history, in 1880, Thomas Edison patented, uh, patented the electric incandescent lamp. And um, that was, what, about 100, and let's see, 1880 would have been about 133 years ago. Uh, he patented the uh, electric incandescent lamp. 
And I, I just was thinking about this this morning, and I have to say this. If you're into green technology, that's fine. I'm, you know, uh, not anti-green. But at the same time, these do use a little bit more um, uh, energy than the uh, newer light bulbs, but they're much, much safer for the environment. If you know the, uh, the uh, little light bulbs that we're buying now, they've got little transistors in them. They've got uh, mercury in them uh, that makes the, uh, the thing light up. And uh, when they break, the mercury gets back into the environment. And if you've ever taken one, and I'm talking about just the regular size light bulb, if you beat them uh, and break them apart, you'll see in there it's got a, a chip about this big that's in the base of it. It's got a, a little um, a transformer, teeny little thing full of copper in there. It's also got a couple of copper wires in there. It's got um, uh, the end fitting is usually brass instead of aluminum. It's a more expensive metal. And all of this stuff is just getting thrown away. Instead of, you know, uh, with the incandescent light bulb, you got a little bit of glass. you got two very, very small pieces of, of uh, it's uh, steel or, you know, it's a, it's a ferrous metal. Um, and then it's got a teeny little piece of brass at the very end, and the rest of it is usually aluminum. Very little waste with an incandescent light bulb. So regardless of whether we uh, um, like to save energy, that is not the only consideration. And I will say that these new uh, green light bulbs are not green. And uh, so we have choices to make, and unfortunately we no longer have a choice about our light bulb you know, which ones we're going to buy because the incandescent have been completely uh, taken out of our society. But anyway, let's go on. 1888, the National Geographic Society was founded in Washington, D.C. And uh, I remember growing up, uh, mom had stacks of these National Geographics, and uh, I used to love to look at all the covers of them and, uh, you know, flip through and look at all the pictures of the world, which now we can see on Facebook any moment of any day. But back then it was a real treat, and I remember the uh, music to the uh, National Geographic uh, thing on uh, TV every week. Da, 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 dun, da, 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 dun. So uh, that was way back in 1888 that they uh, came into, uh, into being. And then in 1926 on this day, John Baird, a Scottish inventor. Does anybody know what John Baird invented? He uh, demonstrated a pictorial transmission device called television, and that was back in uh, 1926. And then in 1927, uh, the United Independent Broadcasters, Inc. started a radio network with uh, contracts at 16 stations, which later became CBS. And uh, unfortunately, and uh, you know my politics, I believe that now they are the communist broadcast system. But uh, that was back in 1927 that they actually got started. Um, 1945, Soviet troops liberated Auschwitz and Birkenau in Poland. And uh, we'll talk about that a little bit today, the uh, gracious and forgiving nature of the Jewish people. And uh, six million Jews were uh, exterminated during World War II. And um, it's just kind of a, a sad thing to, to uh, read about. But they, these two camps were uh, liberated in 1945. And then in 1948, the Wire Recording Corporation announced the first magnetic tape recorder. The wireway machine with a built-in oscillator, and it sold, listen to this, $149.50. In 1948, that had to have been like $1,000. But now, you know, that probably held, what, 30 minutes of uh, recording? I mean, I, I can't imagine it holding a whole lot. And now we got these teeny little things that are this big that hold literally terabytes of information. You can watch YouTube videos, and I, it's amazing how things are being fulfilled right out of the Bible, because Daniel 12 talks about this. 
that knowledge will increase in the end times. And I bring that up from time to time is how exponentially knowledge has increased. I was reading in The Economist magazine yesterday that there were a couple people in a bar just recently uh, and they decided, you know, the, the storage of information right now is done like, you know, on uh, these these uh, devices that we have in our home. And it's by uh, digital storage, ones and zeros. And they said, why can't we use DNA as a type of storage? And that way you have AGCT, you have four codes instead of two. And they sat down drinking beer and they wrote out uh, the uh, program on the, uh, what do you call them, the, the coasters in the bar. And they developed... It's very slow to get this information out is the problem, but they have developed a way now of storing every bit of information that we have in the world today in something the size of that would fit on the back of a pickup truck. And they did this just sitting in a bar drinking beer. But the problem is that it is very slow retrieving. And so what I did yesterday after I read this article is I uh, emailed it to Sergio and I told him he has two weeks to develop a way of getting that storage information out quickly. Then I guarantee if he set his mind to it, he could. He's the most intelligent human being I've ever met in my life. And he was given a similar challenge by his company a couple of years ago on something that was absolutely impossible. They came to his company and they said, we want this done and we need to have it done in two weeks. And everybody sat there and they said, it is impossible. And yet there in the middle of the night, it came into his head how to do it. And now it's part of what you're using on your uh, iPhones and all of these other uh, devices that you use by a moment of inspiration. So I have a feeling that if Sergio puts his mind to this, he could actually uh, develop a way of getting this AGCT information to come out very quickly. And uh, first thing he says, I don't know anything about DNA. Well, he'll go to bed tonight and he will start thinking about DNA. That's the kind of guy he is. But uh, anyway, interesting stuff there. 1951 in the U.S., atomic testing in the Nevada desert began as an Air Force plane dropped a one kiloton bomb on Frenchman Flats. And... Uh, my wife and I drove through Nevada a couple years ago in 2010, and that was the right place. If you're going to drop it anywhere, there is nothing out in the Nevada desert. But uh, uh, if you ever want, you can watch all of the nuclear testing that the U.S. has done, both in uh, 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 Nevada, the Arizona area, the uh, atmospheric tests they did, and the uh, South Pacific tests. You can watch them all on YouTube. And from time to time, I like to go and just watch them because I like to watch things blow up. But um, uh, this started in 1951, and uh, the atmospheric tests are neat because when you see a land test, you see the mushroom cloud come up and go out like this. But the atmospheric tests, they send them out into outer space and they explode them. All you see is this thing that goes, it's just like a, like a star exploding. It's kind of neat to watch. It's not as impressive as watching the, uh, uh, you know, the ground tests, but still, it's kind of just a, it's, it's a neat thing that you can uh, YouTube nowadays. And one last thing, in 1967, and this, I, I just, it almost makes me cry reading this. Um, Virgil I. Gus Grissom, Edward H. White, and Robert B. Chafee died in a flash fire during a test aboard their Apollo 1 spacecraft. And I bring this up every time I bring up a battle in war or anything else, is that these three men went into there and they had no idea that the boots they put on this morning would be the last boots they'd ever put on and that somebody would probably have to take them off their feet. You know, they may have been incinerated, I don't know. But, uh, you know, the last time they had breakfast was that morning and they'd never have a breakfast again. And if they didn't tell their wife or their child, I love you, when they walked out the door, they'll never get another chance to do that. And uh, the reason why bringing these things up, even though it may sound a bit perverse, is to remind us that we are mortal and that every one of us is going to meet our maker and we have choices 
before we do. And there's only one choice that God wants to hear, and that is, yes, I accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Any other choice that you make is, is inconsequential in comparison to asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins and to be reconciled to God. We'll talk about that at the end of the sermon today. Anyway, um, enough of this day in history. It's time for uh, Genesis 26, 15 through 35, and I'll read the verses first, and we'll go through them one at a time, and uh, we'll see what the Lord has in there for us. Um, Genesis 26, verse 15. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they had filled them with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names of his father, uh, which his father had called them. Also Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So we called the name of the well Isaac, because they quarreled with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, because he said, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Then he went up from there to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there, and uh, there Isaac's servants dug a well. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzat, one of his friends, and Phicol, the com commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, since you hate me and have sent me away from you? But they said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do no harm since we have not touched you and since we have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So we made them a feast and they ate and drank. Then they arose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another and Isaac sent them away and they departed from him in peace. It came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug and sold to him. We have found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took his wives, Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and Basemat, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. Now, last week, we saw the events which I believe, and I substantiated that, and I hope that anybody that heard that sermon uh, agrees with my, uh, my idea about that. I believe it focused on the reestablishment of Israel right up until modern times. And today we're going to see some parallels which I am certain will be fulfilled in the days ahead. As I perceive the world, they are already in motion. And this is, to me, a very exciting adventure which I hope and pray will bless you as well. I got a text verse for you today from Isaiah chapter 12. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for Yah the Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Now, before I finish this up, I will say that the word salvation here in this particular uh, set of verses from Isaiah is the word Yeshua. And if you know what Yeshua means, it is the name of Jesus. Now, okay, as a matter of fact, I got this from my wife when she was in Israel a year ago, and it's got Jesus' name right on there in Hebrew. It says Yeshua. So when you hear the word salvation here, 
in your mind, just say Jesus. And listen, I'll read it again and then we'll finish with the text verse. It says, behold, God is my salvation. God is my Jesus. I will not be afraid for Yah, the Lord, is my strength and my song. He has also become my salvation. He's become my Jesus. It's an Old Testament picture of what God is going to do in human history. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. There are wells of water and there is the well of water. Some satisfy for a moment and then we need more. But there is one well which will fill us eternally. As Jesus said to the woman at the well in uh, John chapter four, the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Let's heed his words and may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Okay, our first of three thoughts today is green with envy. Last week we saw Isaac sow and he reaped a hundredfold and became very prosperous in the land. And because of this, the Philistines envied him. We'll go on to verse 15 now. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father, and they had filled them with earth. Last week, what I did is I connected the story of Isaac with the events that lead up to and follow the reestablishment of Israel in 1948. And I am absolutely certain that this is correct. And it's the reason that God has placed these stories in here to show us what will happen again in the future. As I said, that which has been will be again. That which has been done will be done again. And there is nothing new under the sun. Here today, we see the Philistines had stopped up the wells which Abraham's servants had dug in the days of Abraham. The immediate reason, the Bible says, is because they were jealous of him and because of his wealth. And so in an attempt to slight him, they filled the wells. And this is exactly what people do all of the time. When they're jealous of what others have, they will destroy it. In the case of wells, you can take dead animals and fill it up with that, or you can throw in salt or some other poison and poison the wells, or you can simply take them and fill them up with enough stuff where they're inaccessible. And that's probably what happened here. The story tells us that the reason that they did this was because they envied him. This is in direct violation of the agreement that the Philistines had made with Abraham about 80 years earlier. And it shows the distrustful and the jealous nature of the people of the land. Remember what we saw last week though, the Philistines are the exact same people as are living in the land today, the Palestinians. It's just a variation of the same name on the people. They're the same name, the same dirty habits, and the same green-eyed envy. What Israel builds because of God's blessings, they destroy out of jealousy. And this has been going on now for almost 100 years. Israel is moving back in during the, the time of Zionism. There's nothing in the land. It's completely barren. The Jews paid exorbitant prices for the land. As soon as they started to drain the swamps and uh, uh, you know, uh, build up the land, people started saying that it wasn't fair when the land had been there for 2,000 years and nobody had done anything with it. It was under the Ottoman Empire for about 400 years and they did nothing with the land. But the Jews at the expense of their life, at the expense of their health, you know, there's dysentery, there was cholera, all these diseases, they reestablished the land. The land is made for the Jew and the Jew is made for the land and the two are incomplete without each other. Verse 16, and Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us for you are much mightier than we. Now imagine that, just imagine the Palestinians telling Israel to go away from them because they're mightier than they are. This is what happened to Isaac and this is exactly what happened in exactly the same spot 
just a couple of years ago in 2008. Remember that? They booted Israel out of Gaza. The thought of the story doesn't just imply that Isaac was mightier in strength, but in goods and in blessings as well. He inherited Abraham's camp, which would have been in the hundreds, maybe even in the thousands, and he inherited all of God's blessings to boot. Rather than working with Isaac, which they could have done, they could have shared in the blessings and been blessed along with him, the Philistines kicked him out. And as obvious as it is, and I, you know, I'm a very political guy, I'm not ashamed about it, it is exactly what happens in the world around us today. Our government is doing it. Anybody of industry and hard work gets taxed to death. It's just the way it is. Instead of joining in and participating in the blessings of the people that work, they rob them. They overtax them. They pass unfair legislation. They cause them so much so to either close their doors completely or to simply move out of the state or even out of the country. We're seeing a mass exodus from California right now because of exactly this. And we're seeing American companies mass exiting out of here over to India, for example, because it's cheaper and because they have less unfair legislation. This is the way of the world and the way these things happen. It is also the state in Israel in the Middle East today. It is the state of conservative labor in the capitalist world. It is the way things always turn out. Blessing ends in envy and it ends in theft by those who are not willing to work along with the people that are being blessed. Verse 17, then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. Isaac departs from living closely with the Philistines and encamps in the valley of Gerar. This area is about halfway between Gaza and Beersheba. And as you can see, the same thing that happened in Isaac's time is exactly what's happened in Israel's time. If you don't believe me, just get out a map and look for yourself. The Jewish people moved out of that area and they moved right over the border. Exactly, history is repeating itself almost, almost perfectly the way the Bible shows us here is what's happening in modern Israel. I don't want you to be deceived by the newspapers or the news media that side with the Palestinians. God has placed these stories in the Bible and he expects us to look at them and make these connections and to pay attention. As we draw nearer to the end times, which I believe we are getting very close, it's gonna become clearer and clearer to those who read and believe their Bible, what is going on in the world. It's good to note though that Isaac does not fight with these people. He had enough power that he could have. Remember Abraham's camp went out and destroyed four kings from the east. He could have gone in and annihilated the people around him. Instead, he graciously picks up and he moves. Israel, likewise, could have annihilated the Gaza Strip. They could have gone in there and completely devastated. Instead, they packed up, they left the houses standing there, and off they went. It's just history repeating itself. Verse 18, And Isaac dug again the wells of water, which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. All of the hard work that was accomplished and the sources of water that were dug by Abraham are destroyed after he dies. This shows the cowardice of the people even more. They waited until Abraham dies in order to stop up the wells, knowing the man that he was, he would have gone in and he would have destroyed him by force. But Isaac is a new generation. They're jealous of his blessings and his abundance and they take advantage of him because of his easy demeanor. And so they simply attempt to destroy what they believe is his sources of blessing. Can you see modern Israel starting to come into focus here? 
They are hemmed in by these exact same people. Like I said, they have the same name. They have the same jealousy and the same greed. But Isaac moves back to that area and he redigs the wells, calling them the same names that his father Abraham had named them. And by doing this, he is attempting to reestablish the link, which proves that he is the rightful owner of that land. Because his father named them, it implicitly meant that he was the granted the land by the previous king, Abimelech. He's doing the same thing. If you go to Israel today, you can see all kinds of places that were completely laid waste during the 2000 year diaspora. There was nothing there, and yet they have rebuilt them. When Israel was gone, the land was of absolutely no value to the inhabitants, and they did nothing but sit idly by, and they just watched the land waste after they destroyed it. And if you don't believe this, if you think that I'm making all of this up, you can go to, go online and type in Innocence Abroad. It's a book by Mark Twain. He wrote it, he went through a, a trip of all of the biblical lands. He went through all where Paul went and everything and eventually got up to the north of Israel, Dan, and he documents in detail what the land of Israel looked like. And this is just a little over 100 years ago before the Jewish presence started moving back in. And there was nothing. He describes how many people were in the land. He describes what their ethnicity was. And he describes what they were doing with the land. And you would be shocked. Reading today's paper and what the, the media is telling you, is not at all true. There were not a great, there was not a great Palestinian presence there. There was not this great migration of Palestinians out and they're wanting to go back to their homeland. It's not true because he documents by the number, how many are in Jerusalem, how many are in this town, how many are in this town, what their ethnicity is. Everything is very well clearly laid out. So please read Innocence Abroad and that'll help you get a perspective of what actually is the truth about what was going on. But Israel has moved back into the land. They've reestablished it just as Isaac did back then. And many of the places that they have moved back into have the exact same names that they had thousands of years ago. Some of them never lost their name. They just carried the same name all the way through, but some of them they have renamed since they've gone back into the land. This ties them again to the land of their past. And not only the naming of these places, but the archeology. span If you go over there, there is abundant archeology span of things that Israel has dug up out of the earth, which ties them directly to the land. They found a, a, a priestly blessing, which was on a silver thing, you know, the high priestly blessing, and uh, it was on a necklace. And they, they found a portion of that. It's the oldest, I believe, uh, Hebrew uh, such thing in the world. They found, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, seals from Baruch. This guy, the scribe, Jeremiah's scribe, they found seals with his name on it, tying them once again, not only to the land, but also tying them to the Bible itself. Just about a week ago, one of my professors from college uh, posted that they found the top of a column in the land of Israel that came back from, I believe, Solomon's time. And then they have proof that it uh, uh, was knocked over. Then they took it and they put it up on top of something else. And, they, you know, throughout the years, they've reused this beautiful hand-carved column thing. But they found it again, and now it's on display in Israel. They've got all of these things that prove to us that the biblical account is true and that God is working through the Jewish people. Anyway, let's go on to verse 19. Also, Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. The term for well of running water in this verse is Be'er Mayim Chaim. It means a well of living water. It's a source of continuous life and blessing to the people of God for their health and for their prosperity. 
Now, although this is speaking of water, and this is where I'm going to start getting into speculation about what I believe is going to happen in the future, what is the source of prosperity in the land and in the Middle East today? Rather than water, what is, what is the modern source of wealth and prosperity? Middle East, what? Oil, oil and gas, okay? So at the time, water was where prosperity came from. Nowadays, we have modern pumping and we have um, uh, desalination, desalinization. So we can obtain water in other ways than they could back then. But today, the source of prosperity in the Middle East and in the land of Israel is oil and water. In 1999, a maritime drill struck gas in commercial quantities just 250 meters beneath the Mediterranean, 25 miles out from Israel's southern port of Ashdod. Product and this is, by the way, this is exactly where this story is going, is right off of the Gaza Strip. Production began in 2004 at what is called Mari B, that's the name of the well, and there are some 2.8 billion cubic meters of gas which are being uh, piped ashore each year from this uh, deposit, and they believe that there is as much as 22 billion cubic meters of gas in Mari B. Another field known as Tamar, which comes right out of the Bible, uh, Tamar being one of the ancestors of Jesus. She was the daughter of Judah, and Judah ended up sleeping with her, and they had a baby together. Um, uh, so it's, the name of this well comes right out of the Bible. It was discovered in 2009 off of Israel's northern coast, and Tamar is almost 10 times the size of Mari B. It holds 238 billion cubic meters of natural gas. It was the world's largest find in 2009. But this one, believe it or not, is dwarfed by another find, which is a little bit further off the coast around Tamar, but a little further out. This one is named Leviathan. And if you know where the name Leviathan comes from, it comes from the book of Job. It's the great sea monster that's described in that book. This well that they found has a potential of 453 billion cubic meters of gas. And all of these, of course, have the surrounding nations crying foul. And there are shouts of protest as to Israel's right to them at all. If you're not seeing the modern parallels from this ancient story about Isaac and his wells, you need to pay attention a little bit more. The term well of living water, Be'er Mayim Chaim, can be described perfectly by this paragraph from The Economist magazine from 2010. Listen to this and tell me if it doesn't sound like that. As a former chief rabbi of Norway and later an Israeli politician linked to the Labor Party, he is urging the government to follow Norway's example by putting the state's share of profits into a sovereign wealth fund and earmarking the income for social welfare. A one-time chance, he says, to bring truly historic changes to the Israeli society. A well of living water. Just as Isaac was blessed with water, the gas and oil that are in Israel today are going to be a similar source of blessings, but also of contention. Verse 20. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, because they quarreled with him. Now, although we can't tell which wells Israel is going to give up in the future, we know, I, I am certain of this, that the do-nothing Palestinians in the Muslim world at large are going to contest every single thing that Israel works for through their diligence and through God's blessings. Cries of, It's ours, just like back in Genesis 26, are going to fill the blogs and the newspapers 
of the world of the future. I am absolutely certain of this. The name that Isaac gives this well is Asek, which means contention or quarreling. And I am sure that some astute journalist in Israel in the future is going to pick up on this name and he's going to call this well that they give away to these people, Asek. Verse 21, then they dug another well and quarreled over that one also. He called its name Sitna. Very interesting name here, and it's going to tie in with something we're going to say a little later in the sermon. He finds another well, and all of these leeches around him quarrel over that one too. Now, that water had been in the ground all along, and those people had been in the land long before Isaac. And all they had to do was just go dig the wells. But instead, Isaac digs them. Actually, Abraham digs them, and then Isaac digs more. And every time they do, somebody says, it's ours, it's ours. When the water had been there, all they needed to do is just get off their hands and start digging. What they are unwilling to work for on their own, they fight over as soon as the opportunity arises. And this is an exact description of the Middle East coming against Israel today. It's exactly what's happening. History is repeating itself. Isaac names this well Sitna. It is the feminine form of the word Satan. And it specifically means enmity or hatred. Just as the people of God are the bride of Christ, and I'm not saying that the Jewish people today are the bride of Christ. That's not what I'm saying. But just as the people of God, the Jewish people that are, have called on Jesus and all of the Christians in the world are the bride of Christ, the Muslim people are the bride of Satan. Don't get upset. I'm not, I don't hate Muslims. I live in a Muslim nation. I have lots of Muslim friends. Uh, so I, I don't want you to get upset over this, but they are the bride of Satan. If you don't believe that this comparison is accurate, let's just go to the Bible and see what John says about it. Who is a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is an antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. The principal tenet of Islam, the principal tenet, as a matter of fact, if you hold to this, it is called the sin of shirk. It's the only unforgivable sin is to say that God has a partner. They say that God has no son. As a matter of fact, that's written all around on the mosque, the temple of the, 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 temple of the rock or the dome of the rock in uh, Israel. In Arabic, it says that God has taken unto himself no son. It is denying the sonship of Jesus Christ. And that means that they are antichrist. It's right there from the Bible. So my question to you is, are you seeing the parallels here from a story which took place 4,000 years ago in the modern land of Israel? I'm going to continue to tie it together. And as I said, that name Sitna is going to become important here shortly. Verse 22, then he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, because he said, for now the Lord has made room for us, for we shall be fruitful in the land. I can see this one already as well. There will be two major gas or oil finds in the land, and all of these terrorists around them are going to claim that they own them both. And Israel is going to simply pull up stakes, and they're going to walk away from them in an attempt to appease the people of the land. Man, all Israel wants is peace, and they're willing to give up almost anything in order to appease them. Only when a third well is found will they stand firm and refuse to be quarreled with. And if you think I'm making all of this up, just pay attention to the days ahead. I will bet my bottom dollar that this is going to come about exactly as the Bible is showing us. Rehoboth, the name of this well, means broad or spacious. And it's going to be so obvious that the land that this is found in and the people who did the well were Israel, that it's going to be beyond controversy. From this verse, as it says, they will be fruitful in the land. 
and I believe this is coming soon to an oil find in Israel near you. It very well could be that the wells are also representing the land itself. If you follow my uh, logical connection here, you have Gaza, which they've picked up and left. They have the West Bank, which right now they're, they're building in it, but I'm sure they're going to pick up and they're going to leave from there in an attempt to sue for peace. So you have two wells or two pieces of land. History is repeating itself. They are also going to lose one half of the city of Jerusalem. The book of Zechariah tells us so. And woe to the Jewish people that think that they will have peace with the people that take over their half of, of Jerusalem. It says that the women are going to be ravished. It's going to be a terrible, terrible time that's coming on those Jewish people that think that they've found peace with their, their neighbors. It's simply not going to happen. Only through these transactions, though, the giving up of the land and possibly some oil wells is a covenant of peace going to occur between Israel and her enemies. So if it's not oil, then it's land. Possibly it's both. And that brings us to our second thought today, which is a covenant is made. Verse 23, then he went up from there to Beersheba. This is the spot that Abraham was at, Beersheba, when he made his treaty with Abimelech many years earlier. It's also where Isaac and Abraham departed from when they went to Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac, and it's the same place that they returned to. It's a place where God's people have found peace and restoration throughout the biblical narrative, and the same is going to be the case for Isaac at this time. Here's what it says, verse 24. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. The Lord, it is Jehovah who now appears to Isaac and he speaks to him the same words of comfort that he spoke to Abraham many years earlier. He is the one that will bless him and he's the one that's going to multiply him. This is all based on the oath that was made with Abraham on Mount Moriah. He is there and his words are going to be fulfilled. And simply to assure us that it is the same Lord that spoke to Abraham and Isaac is the one that speaks to us now. I want to read you a very, very strikingly similar passage from the book of Acts when Jesus spoke to Paul. Listen to what it says. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Same thing that happened to Isaac. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent for I am with you. Exactly what he said to Isaac at this time. Uh, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he, meaning Paul, continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Now, we might not have visions of the Lord now. I'm not a big big uh, you know, proponent of having visions of Jesus. I believe that we have his word, and I believe that his word is sufficient for us. And the sealing of the Holy Spirit will allow us to understand that word if we just stick our noses into the Bible and read it. So... We might not have particular visions of the Lord, but because of the surety of his word, we have every confidence as Christians that the Lord is right here with us and he is directing our steps. As it says in the book of Acts chapter 17, it says, in him we live and move and have our being. He is right here with us. And I gotta tell you, we got one person that attends here very regularly who's not here today. And you talk about somebody that has had one punch after another, after another, after another. And yet her faith is strong because she understands that despite the physical trials and the financial trials and all of these things that are coming against her, the Lord is standing right there next to her saying, be of good cheer. I am with you. So don't worry about the, the things that are going wrong in your life. 
fix your eyes on Jesus and he's going to be there to take care of all of the problems and lead you back to your heavenly home. Let's go to verse 25. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord and he pitched his tent there and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Lots of wells being dug in this particular chapter. Here we have a parallel account from the life of Abraham. It says, then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and there called on the name of the Lord. In the same place where Abraham called on the name of the Lord, Isaac now does too. This is Isaac's first recorded altar that he has built. As the head of the family, before the time of Moses, he is the priest of the family, and now he is serving wholeheartedly the God of his father Abraham, who is the Lord Jehovah. This is his acknowledgement by building this altar and calling on his name that he has placed his entire faith and all of his hope in the Lord alone. In this spot, the servants dig another well, thus establishing a foothold in the area and making an implicit claim to the land around it. And if we were to make a modern parallel of this verse, building an altar, it would be the coming temple in Israel. A lot of people want to deny that a temple is coming, and I can assure you it is. They have already anointed a cornerstone for the temple. As a matter of fact, when we were there, the uh, cornerstone had gotten stolen because they anointed it and they put it out on public display and so somebody stole it. So what they did is they anointed another cornerstone and nobody knows where it is. Only the uh, chief rabbis or whatever uh, got the knowledge of where the stone is. It's on public display, but nobody knows that that's the one. And uh, uh, they have all of the implements for the temple sacrifices. They're getting ready to start the sacrifices even before the temple is built. But, you know, I was there with my mom and you can go right into the temple museum. You can see the the headpiece for the high priest is made out of pure gold. You can see the high priest's garments. You can see the, the menorah for the temple. Everything is there. It's just waiting to be done. And that is the parallel of the verse that we're looking at now, that the worship is going to be reestablished in the land also. Verse 26, Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzat, one of his friends, and Fecal, the commander of his army. This, along with the next five verses, is very similar to what happened to Abraham back in Genesis 21. In fact, two of the three people that come here now have the exact same names as the people that came before, Abimelech and uh, Fecal. Abimelech means father of the king, and Fecal means strong, but literally means mouth of all. Pay is a mouth, and kol means everything or all. So he is the mouth of all. But along with these two comes another person that wasn't mentioned at Abraham's time. His name is Ahuzat, and his name means possession. The verb of this word, of his name, means to take hold of or to seize or to grasp. And it is used, and try to remember this because I'm going to tie it in here very shortly. It's used when two naturally disconnected entities become firmly united. And if you know your Bible and what's coming in the future, his name is very important. I will get to it in a couple minutes. Verse 27, And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? Now, when I was practicing this sermon, I was thinking about it, and I can just see Isaac like a cowboy out on the, uh, the range, and he's got a mouthful of tobacco, and these three people come up and say they want to make a treaty with him. And I got this picture in my mouth of him just kind of spitting some tobacco and saying, What do you guys want? You know, why do you, you sent me away. You hate me. And he's probably just completely surprised that they'd show up at all. And so he uses a specific word when he says, hate me. Well, let me read it to you again. And Isaac said to them, why have you come since you hate me? 
The word for hate me is senatem, and it's a reminder of the fighting over the wells, one of which was named Sitna, which is the feminine of Satan. So he's tying these concepts together, and God is including this for us to understand what is coming. And this, I believe, is as important as anything else in this chapter to understanding the end times events, which are being prefigured. So Isaac basically says to them, just like the well that I named Sitna, so is the attitude that you have towards me, Senatem. And their response is exactly what we will see in the future as Israel continues to prosper in the midst of their satanic neighbors. Verse 28, but they said, we have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you. Despite their jealousy and despite their hatred of Isaac, they see that the Lord is with them. And the same is, and it will be no less true in the future with the Muslims who hate Israel and the people of God. In their hearts, they can cry out from every minaret in the world, Allah. They do it every day. Like I said, I lived in a Muslim country and they cry out five times a day to Allah. But deep in their hearts, they know that there is one true God and it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They would not come to sue for peace if they didn't know this was true. And I assure you that it is written on everybody's heart. Paul says so in Romans 1. It is written on our hearts who God is and what his nature is like. So we can, we can cry out whatever we want from a religious perspective. But it, if, if it is contrary to what God has shown us in the Bible and how he has revealed himself, then we know that we are wrong. And we're just being simply obstinate and stubborn against God who has instilled these things in us. But what do they do? They ask for a covenant. And yes, the Bible says that such a covenant is coming in the future. Daniel 9 verses 24 through 27 laid the framework for the entire end time scenario of the world and Israel in particular. It includes all, everything that Jesus says in his um, Olivet Discourse, which is uh, Matthew 24, all of the end times thing Jesus speaks about. It includes everything in the book of Revelation from chapter 4 to chapter 19. That is all encompassed in what Daniel tells us in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. In those verses, it says that a, a covenant is coming between the Antichrist and Israel, and it is going to be a seven-year covenant. Now, if you don't believe this, if you don't believe this is happening, you need to study these things a little more. And we can get together in Bible studies and we can look through these things. And this is very important because I believe it's coming in our lifetime. I assure you, I absolutely assure you that the things that have been will be again. Verse 29, that you will do us no harm since we have not touched you and since we have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. Either Abimelech and the two people that came with him, have they're, they're blind as to what's been happening to Isaac being moved around or they're bald-faced liars. And I, I would assume that it's the second. They are the ones that told him to leave the land. They may not have harmed him personally, and they may not have harmed him directly, but they did so indirectly by causing him to move from well to well and finally telling him to leave the land. And if history is repeating itself, they were well aware of what was happening, just as the Antichrist is going to be well aware of what has been happening to Israel prior to the establishment of this coming covenant. But as the book of Proverbs says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. What is happening here to Isaac is a repetition of what happened to Abraham 
when he dug a well in the exact same area just 80 years earlier. This is from Genesis 21. And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all you do. And then once again, they come to him and they say, you are now the blessed of the Lord. And that brings us to our third and final thought, which is the impetus for war. Verse 30, so he made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the next three verses, you can almost see what's coming in the future and how it is going to set up the end time scenario. Isaac welcomes these three in and he makes them a feast. And I can see Israel, after all of the conflict that they're having, these people are gonna come and they're gonna wanna make a, a, a covenant with them and they're gonna welcome them into the land of Israel. They're gonna sign this agreement and they're gonna just share their many blessings with them. As always, they are the epitome of being gracious and forgiving, regardless of how badly their enemies treat them. And if you have forgotten, we just talked about the uh, concentration camps. I wanna remind you of that. There were six million Jews that were exterminated in Germany. And yet Israel and Germany once again are having relations because the Jewish people simply forgave them. They said, we will overlook what's gone in the past if you will simply have peace with us now. Now, I'll give you a modern parallel so you understand the gracious and forgiving nature of the Jewish people. J Japan is here. My wife's from Japan, so I'm not picking on Japan. China is here. And Japan went into China in World War II, and they killed 250,000 people in Nanking. It's a terrible thing that happened. It's called the Rape of Nanking. And the Chinese have never forgiven them for it. They have been totally unwilling to lay aside this enmity that they have in them. And I got to tell you right now, if you don't know this is going on, this is about as important as anything in the world right now. There's a little group of islands in between Japan and China. I think the, the Japanese call them the Senkaku Islands and the, Jap the Chinese call them Daiwo. I, I can't pronounce the word. Anyway, they both have claims on these islands. And we are as close to war in Asia right now as we have been in a long, long time. And I'm gonna tell you, if this goes to war, this is gonna be very bad because we are under treaty with Japan to protect them. That, that is part of our role as the uh, superpower of the world and having established their constitution is that they only have a Japanese self-defense force. That's all they have. So we are their defender. And if this goes to war, you think things aren't gonna change overnight you'd be wrong because China supplies all of our technology to us and they also are the ones that are in there doing their cyber spying on us and they could shut us down overnight. So if we, if we, this little clash that's going on right now between China and Japan go south, we are all going to have different lives the next morning when we wake up. But what I'm trying to do is show you 250,000 people as opposed to 6 million people. Yes, people are people, and it's sad that both of them happen, but the Jewish people simply forgave the Germans, and they've made peace with them. And that is what we see time and time again in the Bible, the gracious nature of the Jewish people, and in history since the Bible was written, the gracious nature of these people. Verse 31, then they arose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another, and Isaac sent them away, and they departed in peace. Yes, Daniel 9:27 says this when speaking of the Antichrist. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. There will be a week means a seven-year period. There's going to be a seven-year treaty between Israel and those who have been hostile to her. A treaty which is going to be broken by her enemies after three and a half years. 
and it will probably be broken based on what occurs in the next verse. Pay attention. Verse 32. It came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, we have found water. The same day that the treaty is made between Isaac and these three, another well is dug which discovers water. Once again, if I were a betting man, I would bet my bottom dollar that immediately after the signing of the seven-year covenant with the Antichrist, Israel is going to find so much wealth in the ground that it will make every other find that they found to this point pale in comparison to it. I can already see the cries of foul play by the surrounding people. They'll say that Israel purposely waited until after the agreement to reveal what they'd found. I'm not a prophet, and I do not see the future except as it's written in the past, and I can see this coming. I could even see it being something like this, because what they're trying to do right now is figure out land swaps. This is the West Bank, and the Palestinians want that, but in order to get that, Israel has to move here, so they're going to be swapping land. And I can see the land swap ending up Israel finding the land that the Palestinians just traded away, and them saying it's not fair. They knew it was there. Can you see how the past is repeating itself? I can. I, I look at these things as history coming to its fulfillment, as prophesied by Genesis 26. I am as confident of this as anything else. I could be completely misreading this. As I said, this is a speculation uh, sermon for me rather than something that is definitive. And usually I don't do this. But I think that I am probably right about this. Like all of the stories that we have come across so far in Genesis, Every one of them has a future fulfillment in some way or another. Most of them in the person of Jesus Christ, but many of them have come in other ways. I believe what I'm telling you is correct. Israel has to be isolated and they have to be ready to be extinguished before the Lord Jesus returns to them. Daniel 12 tells us that this is so. Here's what it says in Daniel 12. How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters when he held up his right hand and his left to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. A time, time, and half a times is three and a half years, and that's the three and a half years spoken of in the book of Revelation. Along with Israel facing complete annihilation comes the promise of the return of the Lord to rescue them. This cannot happen unless things are lined up for it to happen. And I believe Genesis 26 is showing us how it's going to transpire. And as surely as these three have come to Isaac, there will be the unholy trinity that makes the deal, this, this seven-year deal with Israel. Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And the names of these three people imply this. Abimelech, who in the previous time that he met with Abraham was a picture of God the Father. His name means father of the king. In this one, he is a picture of Satan. Fecal, the mouth of all, the one who speaks for all, is a picture of the Antichrist. And Ahuzat, Abimelech's friend, as I said, his name means possession, and it's to take two disjointed entities and bring them together. He's a picture of the false prophet. So you have these three picturing what is coming in the future. Verse 33, so he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. And so he calls it Sheba, which means oath. 
The word Sheba here, though, has an extra H on the end of it that it did not have at the time of Abraham. It is like uh, it's the letter Hey in Hebrew. The addition of this letter makes the word signify more than just an oath, but that which is full or abundant. The well that is going to be found in the future is going to be filled to overflowing. However, Sheba is also the word for seven. And because of the agreement, Isaac calls the place Beersheba, the well of the oath or the well of the seven. As you can see, the coming seven-year covenant with the Antichrist is being referred to here as well. It should be noted again that the same thing that happened now happened at the time of Abraham. Therefore, there are two wells which were found, one by Abraham and one by Isaac, and those two wells still exist today, which testify to the accuracy of this account. Moreover, and this is kind of an interesting thing, the Bible time and time and time again uses the number two to signify a difference. Usually, they are things at enmity with each other. There are two testaments in the Bible. One is based on law, one is based on grace. They're at enmity with each other. There's uh, fallen man and there is man restored. There is day and there is night. There is darkness and there is light. There is good and there is evil. There is Cain and there is Abel. There's Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau, Adam and Christ. There is Saul and there is David. There is life under the heaven and there is life under the earth. There is heaven and there is hell. There is life and there is death. They're at enmity with each other. Each of these is in contrast, just as the two wells are in contrast. One was under a picture of God the Father. One is under a picture of Satan and the Antichrist. The pattern is so clearly laid out in the Bible that we even see it in the New Testament epistles. Anytime that more than one epistle is written to the same group of people, we will see the pattern fulfilled in the second letter. In 2 Corinthians, we see the power of the enemy and the work of Satan. In 2 Thessalonians, there is the working of Satan and the man of sin, also called the lawless one, who is the Antichrist. In 2 Timothy, we see the church in ruin, as opposed to 1 Timothy, where the church is in rule. In 2 Peter, there's the coming apostasy, the falling away of the church. In 2 John, we have the Antichrist specifically mentioned. We could go on and on and on with this type of parallel, but it's enough to show you that without a doubt that this second well that's found is named and it's pointing to the seven-year covenant between Israel and the Antichrist. I assure you that this is coming. To be fair, though, and I want you to understand this as well, when two things are noted, they are in contrast, but quite often they will also confirm. The two testaments contrast each other, and yet they confirm the word of God. The second person of the Trinity has two natures. One is God and one is man. They contrast and yet they confirm who he is. The two witnesses of Revelation, I believe one is Enoch, a Gentile. The other is Elijah, who is a Hebrew. They contrast and yet they confirm. Amos 3.3 shows us how this works. It says, can two walk together? Contrast, unless they are agreed, confirmed. Even if things are at enmity with one another, they confirm one another. In the end, you can't know good without evil. So even what is evil shows us what is good. Likewise, the two wells at Beersheba also contrast, and yet they confirm. They stand as a testament to the nature and the name of this place. Even to this day, 
and off into Israel's turbulent future. Verse 34, when Esau was 40 years old, he took his wives, Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and Basemath, the daughter of Alon the Hittite. Suddenly, right here in verse 34, as the Bible tends to do, it makes this, this abrupt transition. And you think, what is that doing in there? Interestingly, I believe the reason why it's in here is to continue showing us what has already happened in chapter 26. Esau marries two wives instead of one. He married at the exact same age as Isaac, 40 and 40, but he marries two wives, he married one wife. Instead of a wife from Mesopotamia and God's people who are under a blessing, Esau marries two from Canaan, the people of the devil who are under a curse. Esau is living for what is carnal, Isaac is living for that which is spiritual. And guess what, the names of the fathers of these two girls actually confirm this. It says here, the first one is uh, Judith, the daughter of Beeri. Guess what Beeri means? My well. And then you have Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Elon is a, a type of tree, it's a tamarisk tree, but it also means mighty. And guess what they said to him in the first verse that we talked about today? Go away from us, you are mightier than we are. You have a contrast and yet you have a confirmation. It is as if Esau's inclusion here is to confirm everything that we've already talked about. The contrast between good and evil and what is past and what is future. Verse 35, and they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac means laughter, if you remember that from many sermons ago. Guess what? Isaac didn't laugh very much at Esau's wives. They were, as it says, a grief of mind to Isaac and Esau or Rebekah. Esau looked to gain worldly wealth and power and influence by marrying these two ladies, but in the end, he only brought unhappiness and trouble on himself and on his parents. And this is how the chapter ends. It ends on an unhappy note. In the end, for each one of us, we have choices to make. I made a choice about a week and a half ago to sign a contract on a building. And maybe it'll be an unhappy choice and maybe it'll be a happy choice. We're just going to have to see how it goes. We may have prosperity in our life or we may have grief. The only thing that is sure that we can count on is God's promises. They are recorded in his word. And the closer we stick to him and his word, the better off we're going to be. Esau didn't and his family life was strained and his marriages were a source of grief. Now I want you all to know, and you, most of you already know this, that if you need advice anytime in life's decisions, I am there for you. I want you to understand that and I want you to understand that you can come to me anytime that you have trouble and we will go to the word. That's where I'm gonna get my advice for you from. I'm not gonna just come out of it with my own thoughts and if I do, I'm gonna let you know this is my opinion. But the word is where we're gonna go and we're gonna find a resolution for your problems there. Then as I said, we have one person here that emails me almost every day because of the problems in her life. And she comforts me as much as I comfort her because of her continued faith in spite of all of the troubles that are going on right now. And if you have troubles, just email me and we'll get you something from the Bible, even if it's just a verse from a Psalm to lift you up for the day. But I wanna take a couple of minutes here and I want, you to men I want to mention Jesus in the cross. And the reason why I wanna do that is because without him, there really is no peace and there really is no reason for me to give you comfort from the word because the word tells us about Jesus. And for me to try to give you comfort from the Bible when you don't know Jesus is just simply self-defeating. It won't work. So let me explain to you very quickly why Jesus came and what it means to you in case you've never thought this one through. 
Jesus Christ came to live the life that you and I cannot live. It is impossible. Not only is it impossible because we are just make bad decisions naturally, but because we inherited Adam's sin nature. And we can't go back before Adam and undo what he did. And therefore, we inherited what he did in us. Jesus says in John 3.18, we stand condemned already. There's nothing we need to do to go to hell. We're already on that highway. What we need to do is to move away from Adam into Jesus so that we can go to heaven. And as I said, you've got Adam and you've got Jesus, and they stand in contrast to each other, but they also confirm each other. Fallen man and the risen Christ. We need to move from Adam to Christ. And the way we do that is by saying, I can't do it. I cannot, as the son of Adam, please God the Father. And so I'm asking for Jesus to do it for me. He lived the perfect life that we can't live, and he gave that life up. And when he did, he offers us a substitution. We can take our sin and put it on him, and he'll give us his righteousness and put it on us. And the proof of this is called the resurrection, because by coming out of the ground, he proved that he did not inherit Adam's sin, and he also did not have any of his own sin in his own life. The wages of sin is death. If he came back to the grave, as Peter says, it was impossible for death to hold him because he never sinned. Our wages are due. We can either die and be condemned and separated from God, or we can live calling on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and have restoration with God the Father. So if you've never done this before, I don't believe in catchy uh, prayers to get you to uh, make a false conversion. It has to be in your own heart. You just simply say, Lord, I want Jesus, and he will forgive you of all of your sins because of that one act of faith and you can never lose it. It is eternal in nature. It says the moment that you call on Jesus as Lord and Savior, he seals you with the Holy Spirit. That's Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. It is a deposit, a guarantee of the good things to come. We can forget our salvation. God never will. So please, if you've never called on Jesus as Lord and Savior, do it today. That's what I would ask of you. The one thing that you can get out of this sermon. Patterns are fun. Prophecy is fun. But Jesus is where it's at reconcile with him. I've got a closing verse for you today from Proverbs 1. It's verses 28 and 29. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. You know what? Solomon sums up all of his wisdom at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes by saying that uh, now is the conclusion of the matter. All has been here says all has been heard here's the conclusion of the matter fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man and how do we fear God and keep his commandments by calling on Jesus this is the work of God that you believe in the one that he has sent so great things if we call on Jesus now he is there for us but there is a day coming when they will seek diligently and they won't find him because they shunned wisdom they shunned the fear of the Lord for their own wicked ways Next week, we're going to talk about Genesis 1, uh, 27, 1 through 20. It's called A Blessing in the Face of Death. It's a beautiful story of Jacob obtaining the birthright, I'm sorry, the blessing instead of his older brother Esau, and it really pictures some great things. So I hope you'll be here. If not, it'll be on YouTube for you. And uh, before we take communion, I got, uh, as always, a short poem for you based on the verses that we went through today, and then we'll be done. This is called A Pact with the Devil. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells, which his father's servants had dug in Abraham's day. And they filled them with earth, as the story tells. 
And Abraham, Abimelech said, it is time for you to go away. You are much mightier than we. Then Isaac departed from there quietly. And he pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar some distance away. And there is where he dwelt and breathed his breath. He dug again the wells of water which were dug in Abraham's day, for the Philistines had stopped them up after Abraham's death. He called them by the names which his father had given. Also his servants dug in the valley and found a well there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled to make him give in. It's ours, they said. So he named it Asek, because they wouldn't share. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. So he called it Sitna, and moving again did he go. And there he dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called it Rehoboth, as you can tell, there was room enough for him to sit. For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Then he went up from there to Beersheba without a fuss. Blessing and prosperity were at hand. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, I am with you now instead. I will bless you and multiply your descendants in the land. For my servant Abraham's sake, thus you have my word. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. And he pitched his tent there, this story does tell. And there Isaac's servants dug another well. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzad, his friend, and the fecal commander of the army. And Isaac said to them, Why have you come thus far, since you hate me and sent me away in a manner smarmy? But they said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, Let there now be an oath between us and you. Let us make a covenant that you will do us no harm, since we have not touched you and done you only good. And we have sent you away in peace. Have no alarm. You are the blessed of the Lord, as we have understood. So we made them a feast, and they ate and drank. Then they arose early in the morning, and an oath they swore. Then Isaac sent them away, and each he did thank. Then they departed in peace as they shuffled out the door. It came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about a well. They dug it, and it turned out okay. We have found water, is the story they did tell. So he called it Sheba. This is the name he did say. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took his wives, Judith, the daughter of Beeri, and Basemath, the daughter of Elan. They were both Hittites who brought grief to his parents' lives. They were a source of grief to them from the first moment on. In the end, we are a product of our choices. We can choose wisely or foolishly, but the choice is ours to make. If our decisions are based on Jesus, surely God rejoices, and he will bless us for his own name's sake. And so let us pursue him at all times and in all ways, and let us bring him glory and honor all of our days. Above all, let us look to the Lord, our Savior Jesus, who has done such marvelous wonders for each of us. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what you have done in him and through him for us. And thank you also for the Jewish people. I know that they have yet to call on you as a group, but I would pray for them. I would ask each person here to pray for them because when they do, you will be returning to set up your millennial kingdom and may that be soon. I know that they're gonna go through many trials in the years ahead before that happens, but be with them and guide them as your word is promised. We know it's, it will come to pass, but we just ask for a special blessing upon them. And uh, please be with each person here, Lord, and help them to have clarity of thought and clarity of mind about the things that are important and to put away the things that aren't important and help us to fix our eyes on that which is holy and not to put any evil thing in front of our eyes. Help us to be the servants that you would have us to be. And 
Lord, we look forward with anticipation the week ahead. Please be with us, and uh, we look forward to good food and good friends and family and uh, safe trips for those that are returning back to uh, where they're from. And uh, bless them and uh, just help meet every need that uh, is in each heart here at the beach today. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Thank you for everything you've done for us in the exalted and precious and glorious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.